This week's topic was chosen by my wife, and this episode is dedicated to her. I love you, babe. Welcome to this week's episode of the My Mysterious Bible Podcast. This week we'll be looking at the account of Jesus walking on water as found in Mark. And we're going to go ahead and read that from Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was all alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Okay, and uh, this is right after the loaves and fishes, so that's why there's a reference to the loaves. So let's begin with what the sea meant to an ancient Israelite. And we're going to look to the Lexham Bible Dictionary for that. Sea, and that's yam in Hebrew, a large body of water, also used in Scripture to describe the primordial state of the world prior to the creation event, and as a metaphor for evil. And that's from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. And it continues, figurative uses. The West Semitic word sea, yam, is often used in parallel with the term deep, tehom, in biblical poetry. A cognate with the Babylonian term tiamat. Okay, I'm going to stop the definition for a second. Tiamat in Babylonian mythology is a sea serpent. She is chaos incarnate. She is killed by her in battle by her son Marduk because she's decided to kill all of, her, all of her children, so he's leading a revolt against her. So once again, it is related to the Babylonian term, Tiamat, and the word water, Mayim, can also be used in parallel. What I just mentioned about Tiamat is going to tie right into where we go next. The sea as primordial chaos. In some old... Testament passages, the term sea, yam, is used to refer to the chaotic abyss that was the original state of the world prior to creation. This primordial sea was believed to have covered the whole earth. The motif of a primordial battle between the storm god and the sea existed throughout the ancient Near East. And I just mentioned a very prominent, probably the most famous of all these different mythological battles between a storm god and the sea with Marduk and Tiamat. Continuing on, and in Indo-European religions, the war resulted in the creation of the earth as the dry land was separated from the waters. The storm god's victory over the waters brought order out of the chaos, yet disorder was always believed to loom in the periphery. Walton, and that's referring to John Walton, notes, 
that ancients imagined the primordial sea as encircling the earth like a serpent. And remember that the ancients didn't know about a round earth. They thought the earth was a flat disk with a dome over it holding back waters above and that there was waters below. That's why when you dug down, you could dig and make a water well. And that solid dome holding back the water above sometimes leaked, and that's why you got rain. So that's just a whole different, their view of how the world was and worked is very different than our modern view. Once again, they believe there's one, the earth is a flat disk, and there's one patch of land in the middle of it that's surrounded by a sea like a, like a sea serpent. Moving on, the sea also represents Yahweh's cosmic enemies in the Bible. Yahweh assumes the role of the storm god who defeats the cosmic en enemies, seen in the form of the sea serpent or dragon, Tanin or Nakash. Remember that Nakash is the term for the serpent in Genesis 3. It's sometimes called Leviathan or Rahab. Job 41.4 indicates that Leviathan became Yahweh's servant after he was weakened in battle. I don't know if I agree with that, but let's just continue on with the commentary. The Bible also communicates the idea that Yahweh stores the elements of nature in storehouses. Psalm 33.7, Job 38.22-23. In the flood event, Yahweh unleashes the waters of the sea upon the earth and then orders them back in place. Genesis 7:11 and 8:1 and 2. The clearest extra-biblical parallel to this imagery is the Ugaritic Baal cycle, where equivalents for the sea, Yam, the deep, Tehom, the sea serpent, Tanin, and Leviathan have been identified. So this is God's conflict with the dragon in the sea. In the Babylonian creation epic, the Enuma Elish, Tiamat is a cognate for depths, Tehamot. This is me now. On earth as it is in heaven, the sea can also represent the earthly military and enemies of Yahweh and Israel. So we'll continue reading from the Lexham Bible Dictionary now. The metaphor of the sea as chaos is also extended to Israel's military enemies, as they too represent chaos. For example, Egypt is called Rahab in Isaiah 37 and Psalm 87.4, and both Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar II are compared to a dragon or monster, Tanin, in Ezekiel 29, 3-5, 32-2-8, and Jeremiah 51-34. In several instances, the Exodus is compared to the primeval battle, as in Isaiah 51, 9-10, where Yahweh defeats Rahab and the dragon as a metaphor for the plagues of, against Egypt and his separation of the sea, or the deep, is a metaphor for his parting of the Red Sea. The Song of the Sea in Exodus 15, 1-21 also links the waters of the Red Sea to the primordial waters of creation. And like I said, I was reading from the Lexham Bible Dictionary for that. So we still are left with this question. So why did Jesus walk on water? To show his sovereignty over everything the sea represented that was hostile to the kingdom of heaven. I'm now going to turn to an excerpt from the book, I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible, by the late Michael S. Heiser. And this part of it is entitled, What Walking on Water Really Means. Tales of tempest-battering ships inspire respect for the sea. En route to Capernaum, Jesus' disciples watched these stories become reality as the roaring wind transformed the waters around them. 
As they fought against the waves and wind, they witnessed a miracle. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. John 6:19. Appearing in three of the four Gospels, this event inspires Sunday school lessons and has become ingrained in our portrait of Jesus' life. As spectacular and unforgettable as the event is to us, however, a Jewish audience would have seen it in a profound theological meaning against the backdrop of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the unpredictable sea is a common symbol of cosmic disorder, conditions contrary to God's design for an ordered world. This symbol for cosmic anarchy is also personified as a sea monster known as Leviathan or Rahab. The image of chaos as an untamed monster in a churning erratic sea was, com was common throughout the ancient world. People accustomed to the land would naturally view the vast raging ocean as uncontrollable and potentially deadly, filled with terrifying unknown creatures. Religions across the ancient Mediterranean often depicted their important deities destroying or subduing the sea dragon, thereby calming the sea and restoring order. In the Old Testament, it is Yahweh, the God of Israel, who conquers the forces of chaos and imposes order in the cosmos, such as in Job 26, 12-13, and Psalm 89, 5-14. This imagery is applied even to the exodus from Egypt in Psalm 74, 12-17, where God split the sea to deliver his people, thereby conquering the forces of evil that sought their demise. God's ultimate victory at the end of the age is also depicted as God dominating the forces of the sea. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the twisting serpent, Leviathan, the crooked serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. That's from Isaiah 27.1. This is why the description of the final paradise of the new heaven and new earth contains a phrase, the sea was no more, in Revelation 21.1. The prophet Daniel's vision of the end of days and the kingdom of God includes four beasts that emerge out of a storm-tossed sea, in Daniel 7.1-8. These beasts are not aquatic creatures by nature. They come from the sea because they represent chaos. God's heavenly court sentences the beasts to death in Daniel 7, 9 through 12, after which the Son of Man arrives immediately to receive the kingdom of God, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. All of this imagery informs John's account of Jesus walking on the sea during the storm. John identifies Jesus as the Son of Man to whom the Father has given the authority to execute judgment in John 5, 27. John also asserts repeatedly that Jesus is God incarnate. In John's Gospel, Jesus invokes the divine name, I Am, seven times in reference to himself. He declares oneness with the Father in John 10.30, and he proclaims that the Father is in him and he is in the Father in John 10.37 and 38. For John, a Jew familiar with the Old Testament, the image of Jesus walking on the sea was a dramatic portrayal that Jesus is Yahweh, the one who subdues the forces of chaos and imposes his will on the waters and everything the waters represent. The kingdom of the Son of Man had begun, and all forces opposing God's ordained order would now be defeated. Like Jesus, 
like Jesus' disciples, we can find comfort in knowing that the one who treads upon the volatile sea can subdue whatever chaos threatens to overwhelm us. End quote. So my summary is that Jesus walking on the water is a display of dominance over everything that is spiritually evil that the sea symbolized. It is a supernatural display that should have indicated to the Israelites of that day who Jesus really was. He was God incarnate. Because only God can trample upon chaos, even in a casual manner, just taking a stroll and this supernatural walk on the water. And that concludes this week's episode of My Mysterious Bible. I hope this has been enlightening and uplifting to you. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions for future episodes, you can reach us on the website, www.mymysteriousbible.com. There's also a Facebook group for My Mysterious Bible, or you can email me at mymysteriousbible at gmail.com. Thank you, and have a blessed week.